You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Tears and Flowers, Recreating a Culture of Ethics Weep for Africa I first visited Kenya in 1991, during my final year of undergraduate studies, by which time I was serving as president of ISEC at the University of Cape Town. In June, I attended their African Leadership Development Seminar in Nairobi, followed by a one-week study tour on the beautiful island off the coast of Mombasa. This was my first trip on the continent beyond southern Africa, and I was struck by how modern Nairobi seemed as a city. I do not recall the formal content of the seminar, but the informal learning was profound. As I recounted in my book, The Age of Responsibility, one of the first questions I was asked by my fellow African students was, so are you still killing the blacks down in South Africa? Behind that simple arresting question lay an entangled mass of centuries of discrimination, injustice, disinformation, distrust and misunderstanding, a situation not so very different from what prevailed in Europe in the wake of World War II when ISEC was founded. You must remember in 1991 the racist policies of apartheid were still in place despite significant reforms begun by the white nationalist president. F.W. de Klerk, in 1989. Apart from these vigorous debates about justice and political reform, my memories of the trip are mostly prosaic, but no less instructive. For example, when we were staying in what could only be loosely called a hotel in Mombasa, there was no running water, a useful reminder of the developmental challenges that still faced the country. I also remember being amused that the hotel security guard was armed with a bow and arrow. Also, when I politely declined to buy any carvings at the craft market, where I quickly learned the word apana, which means no thank you, a savvy trader surreptitiously offered me marijuana instead, to which my reply was naturally also apana. I brought back two Swahili songs from that trip, Jumbo, a lively greeting song and something of a Kenyan tourism national anthem, and Malaika, a hauntingly beautiful song of romance. To this day, I still know all the words. Sadly, when I returned to Kenya in 2010, the second country on my CSR Quest World Tour, its beautiful people were still recovering from the trauma of post-election violence that broke out in 2008. Around 1,200 people died and more than 500,000 were forced to flee their homes. The lethal concoction of ethnic tribal conflict, political upheaval and heavy-handed military governments remains one of Africa's most wicked curses and deepest sorrows. Those who are familiar with my writing on Africa, especially my poetry collection called I Am an African, will know that I am usually very upbeat about the continent of my birth. But tragedies like this and countless others from the Rwandan genocide of 1994 where 800,000 people were slaughtered in a 100 days 
to the Darfur conflict in Sudan, where at least 50,000 people died between 2003 and 2010, these dark shadows on the luminous continent moved me to write a poem in the wake of my trip to Kenya called I Weep for Africa. It begins with the following words. I weep for Africa, whose valleys are lined with graves and whose rivers flow with blood because revenge feeds on itself. I weep for Africa, whose villages are skeletons of mud and whose cities are phantoms of the dust, for progress leaves many homeless. The Chinese in Africa When I visited Nairobi in January 2010 to deliver a two-day workshop on sustainable business, the director of Ufad Healy Trust was my host. It was wonderful to be back in the country after nearly 20 years and to compare my impressions. The biggest changes I noted were political. In 1990, Daniel Arab Moy was still president from 1978 to 2002 and ruled a one-party state with an iron fist. My impression back then was of relative stability, but no great sense of prosperity or advancement. I recall that it took nine hours to drive 440 kilometers on the pothole-ridden road between Nairobi and Mombasa. Today, Kenya has a multi-party democracy, and at the time was under President uh, Mwai Kibaki, although the disputed 2007 general election and post-election violence led to a coalition government in which there was shared power as prime minister. Apart from changes in politics, the economy is stronger, despite unemployment estimated at 40%, and the roads were notably improved. In fact, the roads sparked one of the most lively debates of the workshop. Why? Because they are built by Chinese contractors. The Chinese in Africa topic is a real hot potato and fascinating from a sustainable business perspective. The Chinese are bringing massive business investment to Africa, especially focused on infrastructure development. But at what cost? They are accused of low standards of labor, ethics and environmental responsibility, as well as the sin of taking away local employment. I do not fully buy the evil China story, and I fear a new Sinophobia is taking hold around the world for a number of reasons. First, I would far rather see investment in infrastructure than development aid going to Africa. Second, the Chinese government is starting to show concern about its tarnished reputation abroad, so I expect pressure and standards to rise in the coming decade. And third, the Chinese are not all about low costs and poor standards. They have an incredible work ethic and high productivity level, which I believe introduces healthy competition and challenges attitudes of entitlement in countries like Kenya. The other theme that emerged strongly in the workshop was corruption, although there was less spirited fight in this debate. I detected a pervasive feeling of resignation among most of the participants. How do you fight a disease that, like cancer, is so endemic and persistent at all levels of government, business and society? One refreshing voice in this debate was the executive director of Unguana Resource Institute, one of the leading proponents of business ethics in Kenya. He believes that corruption needs to be rebranded in the public and business consciousness as Ushenzi, a Swahili word which means barbaric, primitive or backward. This is contrasted with Uguana, which means civilized or advanced or righteous. 
I'm not sure this rebranding will work, but it's worth a try, as ethical behavior is all about reinforcing positive cultural norms. Inclusive business strategies. As far as general sustainable business goes, my impression was that Kenya is still mostly stuck in the PR or philanthropy mode. However, there are inspiring examples of sustainable business practice. As I found out from the executive director of AAR Holdings Limited, which has pioneered affordable healthcare services in East Africa and Equity Bank, which has successfully targeted the poorest sectors of society and with more than 4.1 million accounts, makes up over 52% of all banking accounts in Kenya. Another case that I find particularly inspiring and instructive is Safaricom's M-Pesa scheme. In Kenya in 2005, 80% of the population were reportedly without a bank account. Also, more money was coming into the country through international remittances from family members living abroad than through overseas development assistance. However, these transfers were expensive, with the financial intermediary Western Union typically taking a big slice in commission. Hence, Vodafone developed and piloted a new service in collaboration with Safaricom called M-Pesa, where customers could use their mobile phones to perform some basic financial services, including depositing, withdrawing and transferring money using SMS texts. The project was jointly funded by the UK Department for International Development. The pilot ran for over six months in Kenya from October 2005 in partnership with Faulu Kenya, a local microfinance institution. Since rolling out through its national partner Safaricom, the service has been wildly successful. For many, the service has been a life-changing experience, giving them access to financial services for the first time and allowing them to receive remittance payments from the UK directly. Besides employing and empowering thousands of Impesa agents, the scheme has also cut out a lot of corruption since all transactions are electronic. When Vodafone extended the Impesa service to Tanzania in April 2008, they signed up more than 3 million customers in less than a year. In 2009, Safaricom also launched the continent's first commercial solar-powered mobile phone, the Coral 200. Building on Impesa's success in Kenya, Tanzania, and Roshan in Afghanistan, branded Impesa, they announced in February 2010 that they would bring Impesa to South Africa as well, which is Africa's biggest economy. Given its efforts, it is not surprising that Vodafone was placed first as a sustainable business in the tomorrow's value rating of the ICT and telecoms sector. Building on the success of Vodafone and others, a 2010 study by Arthur D. Little estimates that global transaction volume in mobile financial services would reach approximately 280 billion by 2015. African Mutual Social Responsibility Beyond my brief glimpses into CSR practices in Kenya, I recommend the Kenya chapter in my book, The World Guide to CSR. For instance, the authors emphasize that sustainable business practices form part of the social, cultural, traditional heritage encapsulated in the concept of African mutual social responsibility, which is an institutionalized community development and resource mobilization strategy popular in Kenya. 
In a survey conducted by Muthuri and Gilbert among 70 companies operating in Kenya, they found that the most prominent sustainable business issues are education, environment, HIV and AIDS, and health. Most notably, companies have rallied behind the Kenyan government's Education for All agenda to help meet the Millennium Development Goals target on universal education. Some of the sustainable business case studies cited in the chapter include Unilever Kenya, Magadi Soda Company and Bamburi Cement. For example, Unilever Kenya launched the Neighbours Against AIDS project, a coalition of eight companies committed to developing a common approach to tackling HIV and AIDS in the workplace. Unilever Kenya also helped set up the Kenya HIV AIDS Private Sector Business Council, which encourages Kenyan companies to adopt workplace HIV AIDS programs by creating and building their capacity to fight the disease and share best practices. Magadi's soda company inadvertently adopted a social welfare approach to corporate community involvement by, for example, establishing a company town with vital social amenities, including housing, water, roads, railway infrastructure, a hospital, schools, entertainment facilities and places of worship. Bamburi Cement, on the other hand, has become a leading example of land reclamation and biodiversity efforts with its world-famous Hawler Park, a quarry rehabilitation program. The strong focus on social and environmental issues reflects, at least in part, Kenya's strategic role in agricultural markets, especially tea, coffee and cut flowers. For example, between 1963 and 1991, horticultural exports from Kenya rose by a factor of 12 in tonnage and 40 in value. By 1999, Kenya was exporting more than 245,000 tons of tea, 200,000 tons of horticultural products and 70,000 tons of coffee. Of particular interest is the establishment of the Horticultural Ethical Business Initiative, which aims to work together to tackle working conditions in the flower industry. Responsible Flower Markets Two academic experts on this subject are Catherine Dolan and Maggie Opondo, who wrote an analysis of the multi-sector processes in Kenya's cut flower industry for a special issue on Africa in the Journal of Corporate Citizenship that I co-edited. According to the authors, the seeds of the HEBI process, the Horticultural Ethical Business Initiative, were sown in November 1999 when local civil society organisations mounted a successful campaign against workers' rights violations in one of Kenya's largest pineapple growers. The success of this campaign raised concerns in the flower industry, prompting stakeholders to develop the Kenya Standard on Social Accountability and a voluntary private initiative to oversee its implementation. However, the real impetus for HEBI came from the pressure exerted by transnational alliances of NGOs and consumer groups. The Kenya Women Workers Organization was funded by the UK-based Women Working Worldwide to gather evidence of the ethical trade initiative-based code violations. Their report catalogued various unacceptable conditions from pesticide poisoning to sexual harassment and rape and spurred a campaign dubbed 
produce safely or quit. At the same time, the Kenya Human Rights Commission issued a three-month ultimatum to flower producers to improve working conditions, failing which they would go international in their campaign. When the Ethical Trading Initiative was alerted to these serious labour violations in 2002, several of their corporate and NGO members visited Kenyan flower producers. In fear of losing their most significant market, Kenyan stakeholders came together for the first time to lay the groundwork for their formation of HEBI. What I find particularly interesting is that the Horticultural Ethical Business Initiative did not arise from a vacuum of voluntary codes. On the contrary, there were already seven different international ethical codes being applied. However, they seemed to lack effectiveness and credibility. What made HEBI both necessary and different was the need to involve all stakeholders. As the authors put it, in contrast to the Fresh Produce Exporters Association of Kenya, the Kenya Flower Council and the Voluntary Private Initiative, which were locally initiated attempts to protect the image of the industry in overseas markets, HEBI was a product of direct northern involvement. While the Ethical Trading Initiative and WWW only performed a facilitative role in the process, they were nonetheless pivotal to the establishment of a locally owned, multi-stakeholder process. Nearly 10 years later, according to the Ethical Trading Initiative, while there is still work to be done, changes to the audit process and in the purchasing practices of ETI members have led to a number of improvements for workers in Kenya. For example, there are now more permanent contracts, establishment of worker welfare and gender committees, better provision of protective equipment, stricter pesticide controls and extensive improvements in housing. Furthermore, more women now have access to daycare facilities and there is general acceptance that pregnant women should have light duties. Most encouragingly, Kenya's convoluted and painful journey to creating their multi-stakeholder sector code set a benchmark that other standards, like the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or RSPO, could later learn from and emulate. I also think it is significant that the United Nations chose Nairobi as the headquarters for their environmental program, UNEP, and the UN Habitat Organization as well. While I was there, I had the chance to speak to Antoine King, then director of the Programme Support Division of UN Habitat, who explained the sustainability challenges faced by rapidly growing cities around the world. And it is to one such city that we travel next. Next stop, Lagos, Nigeria.